All right. Before we get into Genesis chapter 19, we skipped a week. And last week I taught on the book of Esther and Purim and did a Purim overview. So I need to go back and review a little bit with you and get you caught back up. And then we'll jump into Genesis 19 and pick up there. But let's ask a few questions before we jump into it. Um, where did we leave Lot? Um, Avram's nephew, Avraham's nephew. Where do we leave him last? Not in Sodom. Outside of Sodom, you're close. But you're actually close, no pun intended. Outside of Sodom, in which direction was the door of his tent facing? Towards Sodom, which probably was east, if I'm not mistaken. But towards Sodom. And we talked about how that's posturing yourself towards something that you respect, admire, and want to eventually go towards, right? Um, that's where we left him off. He didn't, that's, he's there in a tent. He's still living a nomadic lifestyle. That's where we left him. How many visitors did Abraham have in Genesis chapter 18? Three visitors, yeah. And what was Abraham's rep- response upon seeing those visitors? He ran out to them, and then what? Prostrated himself on the ground before them. And he said, if I found favor in your sight, please come. Um, there is an old legend that says that Avram would, um, he would you know, have this tent, and he would open up all the sides of the tent and open up all the doors of the tent, um, which maybe isn't why Sarah didn't have a baby yet, but... He would open all the doors, not much privacy, no. He would open up all the doors of the tent and he would look out and sit at the door of the tent and look out across the horizon and look for visitors to come. And he would run out to meet them and he would invite them into the tent and he would share a meal with them and he would provide food and, and, and water for them and just lavish them. It kind of had a restaurant, so to speak, a pit stop, like, a, like an ancient flying J, right? <laughs> And he would feed them and fill them and show them such deep hospitality. And they would say, what do we owe you for this meal? And he would say, I want you to profess belief in the one true God. And then your debts are paid. And he was like an early evangelist and preacher of righteousness, even out in those, in those days. So how many times do you think does the Hebrew of Genesis 18 use the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God, yud Hey vav Hey, when... The, referring to the individual with whom Abraham is conversing. Guess how many times? Take a step, just take a step. Three? Thirteen times what I counted. Abraham is speaking with an individual the Hebrew Bible is referring to as yud Hey vav Hey. So I know modern orthodoxy and Judaism has a hard time with making it okay and palatable for us or Abraham to be conversing with the creator of the universe. John 4, I believe verse 24, says that God is spirit. Mike said this the other day. God is spirit. And it also says in Exodus 33, if I'm not mistaken, that we cannot look at God face to face and live. But it also says that Moses knew God face to face. It could be like an like a anthropomorphism. It's just kind of using like a idiomatic phrase there i don't know for sure but what i believe is that like mike pointed out a couple weeks back avraham is speaking with and conversing with the creator clothed in flesh who would be in what we call in pinheaded theological terms a christophany a pre-incarnate yeshua okay um and the reason i believe that because it says there it says in, in chapter 18 Adonai, Yudhei Vavhei, appeared to Avraham. He raised his eyes and he looked, and there in front of him stood three Anoshim, men. So that's, that's problematic to people in modern Orthodox Judaism to have the Creator take on flesh and begin to communicate with human beings. We have the means by which we can reconcile that, right? Um, moving on, though. Uh, well, let's go to 1833. If you want to open your Bibles, I'm going to show you this neat verse. It says there, if we want to put all dispute to bed here, it says, yud Hey vav went on his way as soon as he had finished speaking to Avraham. And Avraham returned to his place. Some people will say that these are just angels. Some people will say that these are just men. But I have a hard time fitting that into the text because it says 13 times he's conversing with the creator of the universe. Let's move on. Why is it when he was negotiating with God, did he get it down to 10? 
So out of tens of thousands of people living in Sodom, remember that? He's trying to, what if there's this many found righteous? What if there's this many found righteous? He gets it down to 10. What's significant about that? Yeah. It's a minion. Yeah. And for those who um, are familiar or not familiar with with Jewish practice of when you go into a synagogue, you need 10 Jewish males to uh, unlock, let's say, certain components of the synagogue worship. For instance, a Torah scroll should not be brought out and read from unless there are 10 Jewish males present, called a minion. Certain prayers cannot be prayed unless there is a minion. Certain halakhic decisions cannot be made or decided upon unless there's a minion. It comes from this right here. This is one of the verses used to come up with this concept of a minion, 10 righteous men. Um, But it also comes from, uh, remember the report of the bad spies coming back from the land of Canaan, uh, much later than this, there is 10 bad spies and two good spies. A minion, 10 righteous men, are thought to be kind of the undoing of the 10 bad spies. But it seems like God's like, okay, the 10, 10 is the baseline of preventing my judgment. But I just want to give you a little bit of a lesson, a little bit of backdrop of that, why that is significant. How is Abraham able to speak with God face to face? I already kind of covered this, so I'm not going to get into it. But basically, I believe, like John 4 says, God is spirit. Yeshua is God in flesh. And it says that in John 1, right? So true or false, the three visitors, one of whom seems to be God, Hashem, a pre-incarnate Yeshua, all separate in meat and dairy according to modern Orthodox Jewish halacha and rulings and traditions. Is that true or false? Remember, what did Abraham bring out? He brought out milk and curds, brought out fats, literally is how it's translated, the product of mammary glands from a cow or a goat, (laughs) and he brought out meat, he brought out a goat. Now, there is a verse in the Torah that says you should not boil a lamb in its mother's milk, okay? Through time, modern Orthodox Judaism has kind of expanded upon that and put fences around fences, around fences, around fences, around that original commandment, to not boil a lamb in its mother's, or boil a kid in its mother's milk. But the fences that have been built now are this, that if you eat meat, you have to wait a certain amount of time before you eat anything dairy. Or if you eat dairy, you have to wait a different amount of time before you can eat meat. And even then you have to take a swig of water in between and swish it around your mouth and make sure you clean out all the morsels of meat or whatever. And then in some Orthodox homes, you even have separate dishes. You even have separate sinks in which you wash those dishes. You have separate silverware and all this other stuff. Um, That is not a biblical injunction to separate meat and dairy. And we see evidence of that not being biblical played out in Genesis 18. It doesn't matter. You can finagle it all you want. It seems evident to me that Abraham put before them both meat and dairy, and they ate. The creator did not separate meat and dairy. Therefore, I will deduce that we don't have to do the same thing, okay? Sometimes people will come and they will try to convince you that that is a biblical injunction to separate meat and dairy. You can't eat a cheeseburger, right? But I will tell you that's not a biblical injunction. I think that's, that's fine if you want to do that. And I have friends that do that. They separate meat and dairy. But I believe that that's taking it a little bit too far personally, and I don't emulate that in my own life. So don't let someone convince you that that's a biblical injunction, okay? All right. We're going to move on. Genesis review. Turn with me to Genesis 19. Genesis 19. We're going to jump right in. We're going to turn around to a lot of verses here today, so I want to, I want to get the momentum going here. Genesis 19, verse 1. The two Malachim, the two angels, came to Sodom that evening when Lot was sitting at the gates of Sodom. Uh-oh. Where did we leave Lot off last? We left him in a tent with the door facing the city. And now where is Lot? Sitting at the gates of Sodom. The gates of Sodom, it's not like he's got one foot. In. The gates of Sodom means that he has risen to a prominent place within the city. And he is adjudicating decisions and, and disputes within the city. It means that he has moved in and he has settled in the city of Sodom. He is seen as someone as, as a position of authority almost. 
But what's interesting, it says Lot saw them. He got up to greet them and he prostrated himself on the ground. Now flip over to 18.1, where it says that, or 18.2, he raised, Avram raised his eyes and looked and there in front of him stood three men. On seeing them, he ran from the tent door. We're supposed to see a juxtaposition happening here. One's in a tent, one's in the city gates, the city of Sodom. Ran from the tent door to meet them and he prostrated themselves on the ground. You see the similarities there between Lot and Abraham? It's likely Lot learned this from his uncle, Avraham. And it says, verse 2 of, eight, of, of chapter 19, he said, Hear now, my lords, please come over to your servant's house. Spend the night and wash your feet. Look at verse 4, chapter 18, verse 4. He says, please send for some water so that you can wash your feet. Avraham was offering to wash their feet. Lot is offering to wash their feet. A lot of similarities here in their level of hospitality that they're showing. And he says, get up early and go on your way. No, they answered. We will stay in the city square. Now, this is important because the city square should be safe. Where there is a fear of God, there is safety, right? There is a preservation. There's a recognition that human life is special and justice is important in our society. In a place devoid of the fear of God, the public fear of God, there's going to be an epidemic of fear in public. Let me say that again. In a place devoid of the public fear of God, there is an epidemic of fear in public. So there are people, when I said that I'm going to a certain city last year, that said, don't go there. <laughs> there are cities in our nation that are literal war zones right now. And you do not go there, and you definitely don't go there at night. Memphis, Tennessee, the most dangerous city in America right now. People are fearful for their lives. The capital of all theft and homicide in the United States of America right now. Where there is a, where there is a, a devoid of the fear of God. There is fear in public. So these guys are saying, let's just go out to the square and spend the night in the square in a public setting. And Lot is like, oh no, you don't want to do that. This place is wild. There is no fear of God here. He says, he says um, to them, no, they answered. Uh, he says, he kept on pressing them. So they went home with them and he made them a meal and he made them a very special meal called matzah, matzah for their supper which they ate. Now, you remember Hebrews 13, 2, it says that you should show hospitality. Why? Because in doing so, you might entertain angels that you did not know were angels. And I believe the writer of Hebrews is hearkening back to this story. And it says in verse four, but before they could go to bed, before they could even go to bed, word got around, didn't it? The men of the city surrounded the house. Now, this chapter is going to be very lighthearted. Um, there's not going to be any kind of like heavy stuff going on. I'm, I'm really excited to cheat. No, this is going to be a dark chapter, right? This is going to show the ultimate moral depravity of humanity and how quickly it can descend. It says that they surrounded the house, young and old, everyone from every neighborhood of Sodom. They said, welcome to Sodom. No, they called Lot. And said to him, where are the Anoshim, the men who came to stay with you tonight? Bring them out to us because we want to know them. We want to have sex with them. Let's pause here and go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We find Lot in a bit of a predicament. Second Peter two. And start with me in verse four. And we're going to read to verse 10. For God did not spare the angels who sinned. On the contrary, he put them in gloomy dungeons lower than Sheol to be held for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world. On the contrary, he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, and brought the flood upon the world of ungodly people. 
And he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing them to ashes and ruin as a warning to those in the future, like we are in the future, who would live ungodly lives. But he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the debauchery of those unprincipled people for the wicked deeds which that unrighteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, tormented his righteous heart day after day. So the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and how to, up, how to hold the wicked until the day of judgment while continuing to punish them, especially those who follow their old natures in lust for filth and who despise authority. Yikes. So Lot is living there, according to Peter, and constantly being tormented by the debauchery he sees around them. Now I know what you're thinking. Oh, if it were me, I would have just moved out a long time ago, Right? But then Lot got to thinking about his 401k. Then Lot got to thinking, well, the housing market isn't really where it needs to be right now. So I'm going to lose some money on my house. And he got to thinking about soccer practices. And, you know, the girls are really plugged in at the YMCA. And I'd hate to do that to them. And plus, my in-laws are right down the road. It's really convenient, you know, and. You see where I'm going with this? He was so intertwined with this people group. Even though he was grieved deeply in his heart by the debauchery he saw around them, he was too entrenched in their culture and could not disengage. He was stuck. So let's pick up where we left off. Lot's in a bit of predicament, isn't he? It says, Lot went out to them and stood at the doorway. Closing the door behind him, he said, Please, Ahi, my brothers. It's interesting he's calling these perverts his brothers. Don't do such a wicked thing. Look here. I have two daughters who are virgins. They've never known a man. Please let me bring them to you, and you can do with them what seems good to you. But don't do anything to these Enoshim, these men, since they have literally, it says, in the, if you're reading this in Hebrew, they have come under the shadow of my roof. The word for shadow there is Betzel. Remember there's a guy named Betzelel who constructed a lot of the articles of the tabernacle. Actually, the word for an idol in Hebrew is like the same thing. A Betzel is like an idol. It's like a shadow of something that's bigger. But it's awful also used repeatedly especially in the psalms this word is used for protection when you come under the shadow of something you're coming under the protection of something so lot is saying they've come under the shadow of my roof stand back they replied this guy has come here as a gear as like a sojourner and now he's decided to play shafat a shafat is like someone who has the moral grounds to make rulings and moral decisions on an issue. Like we saw him sitting at the gates. So now he's decided to play judge with us for that will deal worse with you than with them. This is what happens, ladies and gentlemen, when moral relativism, I know you hear me talk a lot about moral relativism. Moral relativism is the belief that when you take away objective an absolute morality that usually comes from a higher power that we might call it the creator. When you take that out of the equation, you're left with a couple different options between what is right and what is wrong and who gets to define it. And it usually falls down to two things, who has the most money and or who has the biggest guns. That's what moral relativism walks us towards. Now, we've got decades upon decades of American citizens growing up, getting jobs, retiring, so on and so having children, having grandchildren who were taught as truth that there is no objective and absolute morality, that that's coming from within you, or it's defined by your own ego, or as long as you just love people, that's okay which tell it to this mob, right? We're just loving people. But when moral relativism grows teeth, 
buckle up. Right now, we are seeing the infantile stages of moral relativism in our nation. The very infantile stages. We're seeing the passive form of everyone just leave each other alone and let them do what they want to do. Let them define truth how they want to define truth. But I am telling you right now, when that thought process and that ideology begins to grow teeth, it will bite you. If you stand for objective and absolute truth and morality, like Lot is trying to do here. Lot's life is over now. Even if he gave him these guys, even if he gave him the girls, Lot's life is ruined. The, the, the clock has run out on Lot living a luxurious life within the city of Sodom. So they say, oh, he's decided to play judge for this will do worse with you than with them. So they crowded in a lot in order to get close enough to break down the door. But the men inside reached out their hands. They brought Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And then they struck the men of the house with Sanvar. Now, Sanvar, it's only used in one other place. It's in 2 Kings 6.18. Do you remember when Elisha the prophet was trying to comfort the army of Israel and they were up against the Syrians? And then they opened, he prayed that the Israelites' eyes would be opened to see the angelic army that was fighting with them. And then he prayed that the Syrian army would be struck with Sanvar, Sanvarim in plural. It's a supernatural blindness that comes from God. And this is what happens. They're struck with this, both small and great, so that they couldn't find the door. Now, they're still trying to find the door. Picture the aggressiveness there, that they are blind supernaturally. They're blinded all of a sudden, and they're still that angry and that aggressive. That's horrible, right? 12, verse 12. Now, let, let's back up here. Was anyone else struck with blindness in the New Testament? Paul, yeah, you go to Acts 9, it describes the scales falling off of Paul's eyes, right? God sometimes interacts with certain aspects of our being and existence, like our speech or our eyesight and our senses, right? In order to prove a point and to, and to accomplish something. Verse 12, the men said to Lot, do you have any people here besides yourself? Whomever you have in the city, a son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, bring them out of this place because we're gonna destroy it. And Adonai has become aware of the great outcry against them. And Adonai has sent us to destroy it. That great outcry is probably coming from the, the, um, the angelic host, like Hebrews 12 talks about the cloud of witnesses before the throne. Verse 14, Lot went out and spoke with his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up and leave this place because Adonai is going to destroy the city. But the sons-in-laws did not take him serious. Wow. That's tragic, isn't it? Now, we know from Ezekiel 16, if you want to turn over there, go with me real fast to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. You think, okay, um, I like to remind people of this, that the, the Sodomites, those living in Sodom, were guilty of the chiefest sin being homosexuality. Um, but I use scripture to correct people of that notion. Yes, homosexuality is a sin in the sight of God. Rape is a sin in the sight of God. But let's look at the crimes here laid out in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. The crimes of your sister, so sister Sodom were this, pride and gluttony. She and her daughters were careless and they were complacent so that they did nothing to help the poor and needy. They were arrogant and committed disgusting acts before me so that when I saw it, I swept them away. So there you are. There's the charges against Sodom. And all of those charges we should be equally cognizant of and aware of and combat in our homes, in our congregation, and in our neighborhoods and in our city. Verses 15, verse 15. When morning came, the angels told Lot to hurry. Get up, they said, and take your wife and your two daughters. Now, this reminds me of a holiday. They just ate matzah. And then in the morning, they're supposed to bug out. What does that remind you of? Yeah, Passover. 
Get up, they said, and take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Otherwise, you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he dallied. So the men took a hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters. And Adonai was being merciful to him and led them, leaving them outside the city. When he brought them out, he said, flee for your life and do not look behind you. And don't stop anywhere in the plain, but escape to the hills. Otherwise, you'll be swept away. And Lot was completely okay with that. No, he wasn't, was he? Lot said to them, please know my Lord. Here, your servant has already found favor in your sight, and you have shown me even greater mercy by saving my life. But I can't escape to the hills because I'm afraid a disaster will overtake me and I will die. (laughs) Come on, Lot. Look, there's a town nearby to flee to, and it's a small one. Please let me escape there. Isn't it just a small one? And that way I will stay alive? How untrusting is Lot in this situation? And we were talking last night, my mom said at dinner, dinner last night, Lot seems to be a guy who just repeatedly finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Doesn't he? When, was he? when was he in the wrong place at the wrong time before? When he got kidnapped. He got kidnapped. <laughs> it's like, Lot, man, come on. And, and we, we see that sometimes with people who, who fall back into sin or a pattern of sin over and over and over again, especially the same pattern of sin. It's like they, they just find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they, they're unwilling to take drastic measures to break that cycle. Kind of like Lot. It's like they just find themselves in the wrong place. They say with drug addicts, for instance, a drug addict needs to relocate somewhere else. A drug addict is going to drive around the streets that he's used to drive through. He's going to wave at the friends that used to deal him drugs. Or he's going to wave at the people that he used to sell drugs to. He's going to have to go to work and, and make minimum wage and remember the, all the money he was making selling dope and all this other stuff. That addict, in order to break that habit, he has to move. He has to find himself in a different place at a different time. And Lot's kind of the same way. It's like, man, Lot, can't you see the sum of all the decisions you've made in your life? Can't you see that yet? Apparently not. Where did I leave off? What verse? Okay, verse 21, I believe. He replied, all right, I agree to what you've asked. I won't overthrow the city of which you've spoken. So he's cutting him another break here. Hurry and escape to that place because I can't do anything until you have arrived there. For this reason, the city was named Soar. It comes from the, the adjective Soar, means to be small or insignificant. By the time Lot had come to Soar, the sun had risen over the land. Then Adonai caused sulfur and fire to rain down upon Sodom and Amorah from Adonai out of the Shemaim, out of the sky. He overthrew those cities and the entire plain of the inhabitants of the cities and everything growing in the ground. Now, if you know anything about chemistry, if you mix sulfur and fire, you create a sulfur fire. And if you breathe in the fumes from that sulfur fire, it will destroy your lungs, right? This is a combination that is extremely deadly. And um, deadly for for plants and animals as well. It says, um, I'm in verse 26, but the wife looked back. Do we know his wife's name? Wife looked back from behind him, and she became a column of salt. Now, this is prophetic. Turn, turn with me to Matthew 13, if you will. Matthew 13. This is prophetic because this is going to be a lot like the coming judgments of this age, this world. And I'm looking for the parable of the weeds. So it says here in verse 24, Yeshua put before them another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seeds in his field. But while the people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the weeds. And they went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads of grain, the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, don't you want us, uh, didn't you sow good seed in in your field? Where have the weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The servants asked him, Then do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he said, because if you pull up the weeds, you might uproot some of the wheat at the same time. Let them both grow up together until harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers to collect the weeds first, tie them into bundles to be burned, which just can't be a proof text for the rapture. Just saying that. Gather the weeds first, tie them in bundles and burn them. 
but gather the wheat into my barn. So there you have, that's, Yeshua says, the coming judgment and the onset of the kingdom of heaven will be like that. It sounds a lot like our story here in Genesis, doesn't it? And it says in verse 27 that Avram got up early in the morning and he went to the place where he had stood before Adonai. And he looked out towards Sodom and Gomorrah, scanning the entire plain. And there before him, smoke was rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. But when God destroyed it, like uh, there before uh, God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Avraham and sent Lot out away from the destruction. When he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived, verse 30. So Lot went up from Soar and he lived in the hills with his two daughters because he was afraid to stay in Soar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there isn't a man on earth to come to us in the manner customary to the world. Is that true or false? That's false. Now, what, what you need to see here is, a, is the retelling of the Garden of Eden story with Adam and Eve. Come, let's have our father take of the fruit. Shaka, like we're going we're gonna to give him wine. Then we'll sleep with him, and that way we'll enable our father to have descendants. So they plied their father with wine that night. The older went in and slept with her father. This is called rape, okay? He didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. The following day, the older sister said to the younger, here, I slept last night with my father. Let's make him drink wine again tonight and go in and sleep with him. They're seizing the fruit, right? And that way we'll enable our father to have descendants. So they plied their father with wine that night also. The younger one got up and slept with him and he didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. Thus, both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Go with me to Luke 17 real quick. I know I'm having you jump all over in places, but that's okay. Luke 17, and look at verse 20. Luke 17, 20. It says, the, the Pharisees, the Perushim, asked Yeshua when the kingdom of God would come. The kingdom of God, he answered, does not come with visible signs. No matter what YouTube video you watch this week. That's what it says right here in the Bible. Nor will people be able to say, look, here it is, or it's over there. Because you see, the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will say to you, look right here or see over there. But don't run off. Don't follow them. Because the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning that flashes and lights up the sky from the horizon to the other. But first he must endure horrible sufferings and be rejected by his generation. Verse 26. Also, at the time of the Son of Man, this is important that we pay attention right here, it will just be like it was the times of Noah. People ate and drank, men and women married, right up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the times of Lot, people ate and drank, they bought and sold, they planted and they built. Doesn't sound very bad, does it? Sounds like a jolly old time, doesn't it? But the days of Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And that is how it will be as the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, if someone is on the roof with his belongings in his house, he must not go down to take them away. Similarly, if someone is in the field, he must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever aims at preserving his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will stay alive. I tell you, that night, there will be two people, uh, uh, there will be two people in one bed. One will be taken and the other left behind. There will be two women grinding at the grain together, grinding the mill together. One will be taken and the other left behind. And they asked him, where, Lord? It was the rapture. No, he's answered, wherever there's a dead body, that's where the vultures gather. Raise your hand if you want to be taken. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't. So, yeah. But what's interesting is Yeshua is invoking the story of Lot's to remind the people of the future, this is what it will look like. In other words, it's gonna look like an average Wednesday or Thursday. 
you will be going about your business, right? Be building, planting, doing business, and you'll see a bolt of lightning, right? And don't be alarmed by the signs and all those other false prophets or whatever. Let's keep going. Verse 37, back to Genesis 19, verse 37. The older one gave birth to a son, and she called him Moab. This was the father of all the Moabites. He is the ancestor of Moab to this day. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she called him Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of the people of Ammon to this day. Now, this is the last we hear of our friend Lot in the book of Genesis. He drops off the narrative. His existence is kind of just crumbled around him. And we see as a result of this situation in the cave, two people groups, they're gonna cause a lot of problems for God's people, the Israelites, right? Through this act, this gross act of rape. But remember the story of Ruth? Which people group did Ruth belong to? She was a Moabitess. It's interesting, like I said during the story of Purim, that we can make some really dumb decisions, right? They say, you play stupid games, you get stupid prizes. Somehow, though, God is tolerant. He's merciful. He might might let you suffer the repercussions of that, but still, he's going to work it together for good and the glory of his name. Just like we see... Yes, Lot had sex with his daughter in a cave drunk, and the Moabites were born. But let's fast forward. There was a woman born out of that lineage. If if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't have the line of Messiah being preserved. Remember that? If it wasn't for a little decision that Naomi made and all the pieces coming together, just like the story of Esther, we wouldn't have Yeshua. We wouldn't have that line of David being preserved. So yeah, it's a, it's a patchy legacy we have here of Lot. But God's going to continue to work through it for his glory and for his good. To me, as I was thinking this morning, Stacey and I were sitting up and reading this and doing last minute preparation for teaching this morning. We were discussing this. To me, Lot represents a cultural Christian who has a foot in each world of moral relativism comfort and luxury yet is also being comforted by their moral upbringing their 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 recognition that there is god their their godly upbringing okay lot to me represents that kind of a person yet how many generations elapse before his offspring laughed at the notion of god's judgment and his very daughters are taking advantage of him drunk in a cave Only one. Yikes. DMF, this congregation, the people that you see and what we're doing here today, it will fail from one or two ways. It will crumble. It will dissolve one of two ways. Either internal division and strife that goes unresolved. Or it will fail over time because of the fact we did not instill the principles of our faith and get real ownership of our children when it comes to our faith. And yeah, we may have people trickling in and visiting and we may have positive attrition of our congregation that way. But over time, it can only go so long if our our children and our grandchildren are not bought into this. And I've said this before, you came into this experiencing the warm and fuzzies. Oh, Passover. Ooh, uh, Sukkot, ooh, Hanukkah, right? Ooh, wow, this, this, God's name, Yeshua, all this, Hebrew, all this amazing stuff. And warm and fuzzies, warm and fuzzies, warm. Your kids did not experience that. Your kids sitting next to you here today, they did not experience that and they will not experience that. So what are you gonna do? How do you get your children and your grandchildren to buy into something when you're, they're not gonna experience the warm and fuzzies because of it? That's for you to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my job to raise your kids. But that's a lot to me. And that is very pressing on my mind because I see that rampant in our nation today. Is that 
we can only experience safe moral relativism on the shoulders of a godly worldview, a biblical worldview. The only reason that people can march down the streets of Washington, D.C. and saying that sex is for anybody and everybody, it doesn't matter the age, it doesn't matter the gender, it doesn't even matter the species. The only reason we can have a people group who can promote that is because they are sitting on the shoulders of a nation that is trying to stay standing up and believing in the very principles of fearing God. But the knees are getting shaky. The knees on which that, that relativist worldview is sitting, they're about to crumble unless something changes and something drastic happens. I hate to be an alarmist, but I'm just being real with y'all. We're gonna see in our nation people moving to different parts of the country that better, and I'm already seeing it. I mean, it's already happening like crazy. We're seeing the, the, the dichotomy of our nation growing more and more defined in terms of culture. And we will see people begin to move to geographical regions in our nation based on their ideological viewpoints, their culture, and their faith. And that saddens me because with that will come the further dividing of our nation. Because yeah, we can sit here today in in this room and encourage each other, provoke each other to good works, and you know, tell each other, believe in God, do this, follow the scriptures. You know, we can go on and we can encourage that. We can have this echo chamber of sorts here. But I don't know how many of us can brush up against someone that has a very rough atheistic worldview and someone who is very militant about that and be able to really converse with them about our worldview. So that division will be present. That division will be there. The division is growing in our nation. And it's interesting because it's not going to be like in the Civil War, North versus South. I believe it's probably more than likely going to be urban versus rural. That there's going to be a dichotomization of our nation based on people that go to cities or live around cities and people who choose not to and go to places where they want to be people of like faith and like culture. Right or wrong, I don't know. But it's on the horizon. Any sociologist would agree with what I just said. Lot is a reminder to me that we are the sum of all of our choices, aren't we? Here he is sitting in a cave. He just fathered two children with his daughters in a hangover. He's probably looking back in his life and saying, how did I get here? Right? I went from shepherding the fields next to my uncle Avraham, a righteous man who could talk to God, to his own daughters having a warped and jaded view of sexuality and raping him in a cave. And then he drops off the pages of scripture, at least the book of Genesis. If that doesn't frighten you, I don't know what would. I always say this, and I really, really do believe this. The more I connect with people and counsel people, talk to people, you were created to do one thing, to choose. You were created to choose. You are the sum of all those choices. Whether it's a t-shirt you put on in the morning, which one you put on, to whether or not you're going to go to that website. You are a sum of all your choices. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. We get hung up on this question. I, I, I know I skipped over it here, but we get hung up on this question. Why would Lot offer up his daughters, right? Did you have that question when you're reading this? Wow, that's really messed up. Why did Lot offer his daughters his perverse mob? Instead of these two visitors. And you know, a lot of people go, well, it's Near Eastern tradition. When someone comes into your home, you show them the utmost respect. Yeah, okay, 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 that's fine. But what we should be asking is, how did Lot get so entangled in such a wicked city for so long that he painted himself into a corner where he had to offer his daughters to an angry, perverse mob? That's the question we should be asking ourselves and analyzing around us, what are we entangled in today 
that is going to paint us into a corner that if something comes knocking at our door, we cannot, we have to offer something up. We have to sacrifice something to the mob. Ask yourself that question today and become disentangled from it. It could be as simple as a job. It could be a show you watch, a video game, you, whatever. It, it could be a relationship that you're in, that you're wondering, do I marry this person? And you know deep down in your heart, this is not the one, but I hate to break it off. Look around you. And if the same judgment came on Dothan, Alabama, as did Sodom, how many people around you would escape that judgment? How many people around you would follow you out? Valid question, right? With that, the thought of God as someone who punishes sin makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We want the nice, merciful God, right? We want that. But God is just. We, we get um, our, our feathers ruffled when God punishes sin. And then we get our feathers ruffled when he doesn't. Right? God is just. But there's typical two, typically two reactions I've seen to this narrative in, in the years of teaching through it. And it's this. Really kind, loving people say this. They have a deep sorrow and compassion for the people of Sodom. They think, well, maybe God was being a little bit heavy-handed there. Right? Man, God, that was intense. Did you really have to kill all those people? First of all, let's back up. How many people did we dwindle down to that Avraham was negotiating for? Ten out of probably tens of thousands of people living in the city. So we got that in mind. But also, if you go to Psalm 92, 15 real quick. We have to recognize that this verse, Psalm 92, 15, We get back up to verse 12 or 13. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the cedars of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courtyards of our God. Even in old age, they will be vigorous, still full of sap, still bearing fruit, proclaiming that Adonai is upright. My rock in whom there is no wrong. So what God did to Sodom and what he will do in the future to unrighteousness is right is just. Now, on the flip side, here's the second reaction I oftentimes see. Self-righteous gloating in the destruction of Sodom and her inhabitants. Oh yeah, you get them, God. Right? I want to see all those people taken out. Anybody who's doing stuff like that, man, they deserve to die. Right? Is that righteous? Turn with me to Proverbs. I got Proverbs 24, verse 17. Proverbs 24, verse 17. You know, Gabe, as we're turning there, it reminds me of that story. It's not in the Bible, I don't think, but it's the sages told it, that God told the children of Israel not to gloat over hmm. the drowning yeah. of the people uh, that were chasing them, the Egyptians, yeah. that those were his creations. Mm. Yeah. Here, yeah, Proverbs, Proverbs 24 says that. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. For Adonai might see it and it would displease him and he might withdraw his anger from your foe. Wow. So of these two responses, which one is right, which one's wrong? They're both right and they're both wrong. We should have a deep sorrow when God judges sin for the people who were unrepentant in their sin. Right? We should also recognize that God is just, he is perfect, and in him there is no wrong. So don't gloat. Don't boast over someone's ruin. Weep for them. Like Avraham did as he looked out over the plain and saw. 
he realized his negotiating did not work. And that grieved Avram. With that, I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to, I'm going to read this verse before I do, I guess. Revelation 20. This is a coming judgment. I saw a great white throne and I would be doing you all a disservice if I did not remind you of a coming judgment. I saw a great white throne and in him who was seated on it. From his presence, uh, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. And anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a coming judgment, ladies and gentlemen. And the gospel says this, that Yeshua has provided you a means out of that judgment, right? The gospel is, you just have to confess and believe on him. And he says, go there and stop sinning, right? With that, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to um, get ready to close out with the ironic benediction. Abba, Father, I thank you for your word, that we can study it and, with, and, and draw lessons out that are still so applicable for today. May we, as this world grows more unrighteous in your sight, not boast, not condemn, not judge, but rather negotiate and intercede on behalf of those around us. May we be beacons of hope and beacons of the gospel to those around us. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your patience as we repent on behalf of ourselves and our own flesh, on behalf of our leaders as a nation, on behalf of the growing secularism in our nation. We repent, Father, and we plead for your mercy. May we use that, that mercy wisely to bring others close to you and be repairers of those around us and be heralds of righteousness. I pray this in the matchless name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. We're going to say the blessing here. Over the... I didn't do a Q&A today because of time and everything and looking across people are yawning and it's kind of warm in here. So I hope you'll forgive me, but I'll be up here if you have any questions or whatever. We're going to um, say the blessing over the fruit of the vine.